Great to see you. Hey, I just want to, uh, just going to take a minute. Pastor Ron's going to speak this morning, but I want to say just a couple quick words. I want to say one thing about worship, and I want to say uh, another, a few words about baptism. So the first thing I, I wanted to mention is that if you're new to church and like you come into a public assembly and all these people are like clapping their hands, putting their hands together, well, you get it in that clapping is central to, Amer- to American culture. We clap at things that we appreciate, that we laud and all, and so the Bible says, clap your hands, all you people, and even shout to God. There's times you shout to God with a voice of triumph. So, so clapping is a way that God wants to be worshipped. When people come together, they clap to him. And so that's why we clap this morning. There's another uh, verse I wanted to share with you in Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 35, verse 18. And it says this, I will thank you in front of the great assembly. So when we gather together in an assembly, One of the things we do is we're thanking God, we worship God, and to worship God means this, means to respond to all that God is and all that God has done with all that we are. It's responding to him. So it says this, I will thank you in front of the great assembly. I will praise, or the Hebrew word is halal, where we get our American English word, hallelujah. I will halal you before all the people. Well, the word halal means this. It means to be clamorously foolish. It means to celebrate, to boast, to rave. It means to have unrestrained admiration, to release unrestrained admiration. So it's responding to all that God is and all that God has done with unrestrained admiration. In other words, sometimes it's okay to get, God says it's okay to get a little crazy before all the people, okay? So, and I, yeah, you get... um, and I get it, it kind of gets outside your comfort zone, but we don't have any problem doing that at the game this afternoon, a little unrestrained admiration for our sports team. But when it comes to the Almighty, sometimes we're a little bit restrained. So anyway, so I just want to encourage us to thank him in the assembly and to praise him. Unrestrained admiration, the Hebrew word, to be clamorously foolish. So anyway, there it is, friends. That was good worship this morning, huh? That was great. But we worship with all of our lives. So we're having a baptism at Forest Home. It's awesome. And uh, we have registered to get baptized 44 people this afternoon. And uh, so it's awesome. <laughs> and some people say, well, like, why do you get baptized? I just want to lay it out in just a few minutes why we do this. Jesus said, uh, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. So after you make disciples, then what do you do? After they're followers, the next step is you baptize them. It says, Uh, And so Jesus commands us, commands the church to do this as a next step when people identify with Jesus Christ and become his follower. So Peter said this in Acts chapter 2 when he was preaching. He says this, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it says, look, each of you, after you've become a follower, after you turn to God, that's you turn to God, then you get baptized. And so Christ commands the church to baptize. Peter here says, individually, each one of you is to be baptized. So you say, well, what is baptism? Well, comes you may know this, comes from the original word baptismo, uh, baptismos, and so it means to immerse. It means like when a ship would sink in the ocean, that was it was baptismos. It sank and was immersed into the water there. And so in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, 
It says when they confessed their sins, John the Baptist is preaching here, says he baptized them in the Jordan River. So they were in the river, they went into the water and came out of the water. When Jesus was baptized, that's how he was baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, six, verse 16, it says that after his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water. So he went into the water, immersed, baptismos, and then out of the water. So that's why we baptize the way we do. Acts 8, 38, uh, there, there's a story of the, uh, Philip and the eunuch there. And, uh, and so they run into each other. The eunuch wants to receive uh, Christ there, be right with God. And so Philip then ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, and uh, Philip as well as a eunuch, and he baptized him. So he immersed him, he submerged him into water. But the point is, is that it's in the water, and secondly, that it's after one believes and understands salvation. So uh, all, someone is always baptized in water in the scripture. So that's why we do it. Um, so some people wonder like, well, uh, when I was like a kid or I was a child and my parents, you know, they sprinkled me or whatever, that's awesome. And that was well-intended and well-intentioned and all that. But I would also encourage you that now that it's your choice, like that was done for you, kind of to you, but now that it's your choice and you can make the decision and you know you're a believer, I would encourage you then to, to be baptized. So that's it on baptism. That's it on worship. I want to introduce you, Pastor Ron Williams. Uh, he's a phenomenal human being. He's an inspiration to all of us. Uh, he's an encouragement. He's a great man. He's uh, pastored uh, two churches for over, as a lead pastor, what I'm doing now, he's done for 33 years. He's got a double master's, a doctorate, reads the Bible like about four times a year. This is a great man right here. My good friend, Ron Williams. I'd like to read for you our text this morning. Let me just say up front, as we walk through the first three chapters of the book of Romans, uh, perhaps some of the hardest sermons to preach come from this section, but some of the most important sermons come from this section because it deals with forever. And so I want to read these verses and set the stage for our sermon this morning. Therefore, you have no excuse, O men, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you will that you will escape the judgment of God? Note, no excuse, no escape. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience and not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are uh, storing up wrath for yourself 
on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Lord, may your word be alive to us today. May it reprove us, but at the same time, may we find great encouragement. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, and to Pastor Rod, I must say, uh, among the many men that have been precious to me and have influenced my life, uh, uh, Pastor ranks right up there with him, uh, with them. And to me, uh, he, uh, I, I suppose it's appropriate to, to one man to say to another man, uh, I love you. I love you from the depths of my heart, and I thank you for your friendship. I'll struggle a bit today, and I might as well get it out so that I can talk to you. My heart is broken today. Um, I was scheduled uh, to get a new knee on Tuesday, and I was really excited about that. And, you know, you go through a whole bunch of things and uh, to get prepared. And so my last visit was with the surgeon on Thursday, and everything's a go. <clears throat> Uh, I came home, though, and my wife was in tears. And uh, on thir- uh, t- uh, Monday, I had taken her for a CAT scan. And the CAT scan revealed that she has a mass, and I was talking to Linda Laurie this morning, and a mass to the doctors can be something like that, or it could be bigger than that. And this mass has wrapped itself around her aorta uh, in the lower part of her body, and it uh, has created a lot of pressure on her spine so that it's been very difficult to walk. And that was why we were looking into this situation. Well, as you know, we have been married over nearly 60, almost 60, well, we're going on 62 years. I met Anita when I was 17. She was 18. And so you look back over about 64 years of life, and when you hear the word oncology involved, any of us that have had relatives or ourselves have gone through cancer treatment, we know what that word means. And so I said to my honey, I said, let's think the worst. Everybody will say, well, it might be better. It may not be what you think it is. And I said, well, let's think the worst because we are in Jesus Christ. And what is the worst? The worst is that we close our eyes on this side and we open them on that side. We have a hope that's steadfast and sure in Jesus. And so uh, I said, you know, any news uh, above that, that's that's fine. (laughs) So we're kind of in a win-win situation, although we're facing the possibility of great loss. So you may not needed to hear that, but I needed to say it (laughs) so I can get on with this sermon. (laughs) Uh, Coming to this text, The first thought I had about uh, a title for it was I wanted to call it uh, The Trial of the Ages. Uh, I'd like to put an an S on that and make it plural, The the Trials of the Ages. Uh, Some of us in this room um, uh, have heard about the trial of the century, and that takes us back to the OJ trial in, in 1995. And uh, uh, we know that the criminal court found him innocent of the uh, 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 murder of his uh, estranged wife, uh, Nicole Simpson, and Ron Goldman. 
Later on, uh, a civil uh, court found him guilty, and uh, it was a huge fine that O.J. had to pay. And that was called the crime of the century. So since uh, Google knows everything, <laughs> I've become a, a Google addict, okay? Uh, and so uh, I didn't know it, but there's been about 12 crimes, uh, crimes of the century in America. And so I got to think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But two stand out to me because I think they have shaped forever uh, who we are as a nation today. And my fear is that there may be no remedy for them. The first was in 1960 when the Supreme Court ruled against teaching of creationism in school. And that goes way back to 1925 and the Scopes trial. It was called a monkey trial. And the interesting thing about that trial was there was uh, uh, the Butler Law in the state of Tennessee for, forbid teaching of evolution in school. And so a trial was held, and that law was upheld. There was a law like that in Arkansas. There was one like that in Mississippi. You could not teach evolution. But through a series of trials and uh, Supreme Court decisions, 1960, which would have been, what, 35 years later, it became illegal to teach creation in our schools. Uh, and then the second was in, what, 1973, Roe v. Wade, and uh, abortion became legal in the United States. I'm not so sure at this late date that we can overcome that as a nation. Uh, and when I read these scriptures, it, it has particular impact to me at this stage of life to think in my lifetime we have seen that kind of thing happen in our nation. And I don't know that we can recover as a nation, but I do know this. We can recover as a people. And our God can still reach down into the human heart and can transform us. And so let me suggest three thoughts that come from this text this morning that are standouts to me. And in each of these divisions, I want you to think it's a description of God. And so, uh, in the first verse, uh, it says this. It says, uh, we do the very things for which we condemn. And in this case, God becomes the plaintiff. And as the plaintiff, he's indicting the human race. He says, we do the very things that we condemn. Now, Pastor Arad, for the last two or three weeks, have been talking to us from the first chapter of Romans. And uh, when you look at the first chapter of Romans, the standouts there, the really biggies are adultery, uh, homosexuality, uh, uh, you know, and all the perversions that can happen morally and ethically. And I, I just want to set aside for our conversation this morning the biggies and talk to you a little bit uh, about things that we may not think are biggies. In the first chapter, it talks about greed, envy, deception, gossip, boasting, promise-breaking, disobedience, uh, being unmerciful, being spiteful, uh, not being good, not uh, doing the good thing, and not fearing God. Uh, and that's, that's one list. 
The second list uh, comes in the third chapter, and it sounds something like this. It says uh, that uh, that there's no one that does good. There's no one that's righteous. There's no one that's truly wise. There's no one that seeks God. Uh, And none does good, and they don't fear God. And uh, it is so incredible to me uh, how fallen we are as a people and how uh, we fail to realize how lost we really are. And we can never appreciate the cross of Jesus to the degree uh, of its significance unless we fully understand how really lost we are. I remember a number of years ago, his name was Henry Shivers, and in our church in Orange, and this must have been about 1973, something right around there, and we had bought a, 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 an old uh, uh, hotel, so-called. It was a Victorian building. It was basically a flop house, and we began a ministry in that flop house, and eventually that property became quite valuable, and it was in the historical register, and the building was re- remodeled, and it's a beautiful building today. But for a, uh, uh, quite a season, we had derelicts living there. And it was one of my first attempts at outreach ministry. And uh, so I met men who were in their 60s and 70s who were basically derelicts, uh, uh, you know, away from their families and such as that. And uh, they were drunks. But the God, God began to move in their lives. And so I would share Christ with them. I would have Bible studies with them. And they would be off the wagon and on the wagon again, and it went back and forth, back and forth. And so uh, Henry Shivers was one of them. And Henry had uh, had a rough life, but his heart was quite soft before the Lord. And uh, so uh, I didn't know that Henry had been sick. John Barton was a, a Bible college student who was kind of the manager of that, that uh, uh, building. And so... He called me on New Year's Day, and he said, uh, Pastor, come. He says, I, I think Henry may be dead. So <laughs> I arrived on the scene, opened the door to Henry's room. Henry was really dead. <laughs> he had been dead for quite some time, and there was no mistaking it. <laughs> he was really, really dead. And Don wasn't quite, uh, John wasn't quite sure, but, but me being a bit older, uh, I know death when I see it, <laughs> okay? Well, can you believe you're really, really dead in sins and trespasses? You're not just kind of alive. You're really dead. And that's why you have to be raised to newness of life. And that's what baptism is all about, is identifying newness of life in Jesus Christ. And you who are going to be baptized today, you're going to go down into the death of the Lord Jesus, and you're going to rise to newness of life in him. And it's just wonderful, dramatic picture and a testimony to the world that you have devoted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going to follow him all the days of your life because you've discovered that he is the life source. We need such a savior as that. But it's interesting in this text, it is God himself. It's God himself who is the plaintiff. He says, I have something against you. And we think of the big sins, and we criticize people for that, but how about my own heart? But, you know, do I, do I spread rumors? Do I, uh, do I uh, uh, kind of cheat a little bit here and there? Do I always tell the truth? 
No, I don't. I'm a fallen creature. And I love to talk to our men's study about uh, there are two Adams that live in me. There's Adam 1, who I can't change. Adam 1 rebels against God. Adam 1 is God's enemy. And I re- inherited that from my, my first parent, Adam, as you did. And we don't get rid of that in this life, but we can kill it. The, we reckon ourselves dead to that. And baptism is kind of like that. It's an outplaying not only of initial act of faith in Christ, but an ongoing act of faith in Christ where you put to death that old nature. And you know what about that old nature? It truly is a zombie because it always comes back to life again. About every 15 minutes as I weigh it. And, <laughs> and you, you've got to kill it. You just have to, have to kill it. But you are equipped to kill it because Adam, too, lives in you. The first Adam came, and in him all people became sinners. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, came, and in him all can be righteous by putting their faith in him. So it is interesting that the plaintiff, and we'll get to it in a little bit, has another hat to wear. But before I tell you about that hat, let me talk to you about God the judge. This this is a little bit scary. We read about it uh, in our scripture reading. And I I tell you, my problem is the way the light shines up into my poor eyesight, I really struggle reading. So anyway, here's what the scripture said. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge uh, those who practice such things, you uh, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. But because of your heart and impenitent hearts, you are stirring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It, unlike human courts, uh, you can't escape God's judgment. You cannot be excused. You think in in human jurisprudence or the criminal system, a crime can go undetected. Uh, And you think of your own life. I'm glad some of my crimes have not been detected. They may have been petty crimes, but they were crimes nonetheless. But there was an all-knowing, all-seeing God who saw all my misbehavior. And somehow or another, in God's cloud, I don't understand the cloud because I'm not technically savvy, but somehow they put stuff in the cloud out here in the atmosphere someplace. And you techies, you'd understand that, and you'll try to explain to me, and I still won't get it. But but God had the cloud long before there was a cloud. And he has this great storage system in heaven, and he has instant recall because he always lives in the eternal now. So in his sight, Whatever was is now, and whatever will be is now, because that's where God lives. And so when I think about judgment, I have to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't can't hide my sin from God. There's no hiding place, and others may not have detected it, but it still happened. I think another thing that could happen in our, our our. jurisprudence or our way of law, a a person can uh, commit a crime that could be arrested, but there can be a miscarriage of judgment. 
uh, of justice so that the, uh, the accused who is guilty is not uh, uh, sent to jail, doesn't have to pay the fine, somehow gets, gets out of the jam. Another thing that happens in our system is that you can be put in jail and then you can escape and you can go into hiding and never be found again. And sometimes I think maybe we process that way with God. But everything is open before his eyes. We need to understand that everything is open before his eyes. Now, uh, let me suggest this to you, uh, that uh, there is no hiding from God. And uh, our sins are well known to him, uh, and so we're really in a mess we're in a hard place. What are we going to do about it? We can't save ourselves. Well, the third picture of God in this text is a beautiful one, for God is the liberator. And uh, it says uh, in the scriptures, um, uh, to God who has revealed himself in Christ, and, and then it talks about kindness, uh, forbearance, and patience. And the verse, uh, the fourth verse reads this way, Oh, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Uh, <clears throat> forbearance has to do with the, the, the restraining of God, holding back his wrath, uh, holding back his anger. And, and just think, I don't know how long ago the Garden of Eden was. I don't know how long ago it was when Adam and Eve sinned against God. But I do know this, that every child born on planet Earth since that time, right up to this day, was born a sinner, born a rebel against God. Every one of them will grow up to do gross things in the eyes of God. But God has held back his wrath. He's held it back. He's held it back. Uh, we, we see it expressed in part, but never in full. But the scripture's talking about that day of judgment and of wrath. Uh, <clears throat> There are two uh, uh, judgments that are, I would call the judgments of the ages, okay? The, the first is the judgment of we who believe and follow Christ. And uh, in that judgment, uh, we are, because we are in Christ, it's our behavior that's going to be evaluated. Did it glorify God? Did it honor him? Or was it all about us? And so Paul writes, and he says, in that day, uh, your soul's going to be saved, but your, your works are going to be burned up. And, and, and my heart is, God, help me to serve you in such a way that when I come before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, he'll be pleased with what I've done. I already know God is pleased with me because I'm in his son that's been taken care of at the cross and in the resurrection. Uh, my, my destiny, and if you're in Christ, is not at risk here but your performance is. Do you get a a well done or, hey, uh, uh, that that wasn't quite right. And so it calls us then to repentance. And what is repentance? It's doing an about phase. Paul writes and he says there's a repentance that needs not to be repented of. There is a repentance that needs not to be repented of. So the idea is that our lives in Christ are lives of continual Turning, turning away from the rule of Adam, one, 
and turning to the rule of Adam too. Turning away from our self, selfish uh, 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 intentions and motivations in life and making full surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our Christian life is about. However, there's one that is just really scary. It's called the great white throne judgment. Notice the difference between a seat and a throne. A seat is the the judge's bench that he sits on, and a throne is where a king sits. And in this case, it's the sovereign God of the universe who is the judge of all. And at that judgment, there's no escape. Uh, Every man will be... uh, 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 Judged according to his deeds, every woman according to his deeds. And the scripture is very clear. If we went down in this text, we would discover we would be judged by truth. Pastor Rod preached one of the finest sermons last week when he was talking about the suppression of truth. Truth will out. And the non-believer will be held responsible for what he or she has done with the truth. It's uh, according to deeds. What did you do with your life? And then Paul argues there's just some folks in life who are not even Christ followers, but they live better than Christ followers. And so men, women, will be judged according to what they did, according to light. And so the Jewish people in Paul's day were under greater condemnation than the Gentiles because the Jews had been given all of the prophets, all of the rituals of worship, the sacrificial system, and They knew about God, but they rejected his rule in their lives. And he says the Gentiles who don't know God live better than you Jews who do know God. So according to light, and you'll be asked, how can, you know, is God fair? How can God be other? Is he not the judge of the whole world? He can be none other than just. And then conscience. Every person is born with a conscience. I knew when I told lies long before I even knew about sin or salvation or anything like that, I knew that was wrong. You knew it. And nobody ever taught you to lie. You just came by it naturally. We don't have to be taught to steal. We want the piece of candy that belongs to our sibling, or we want the toy. We just take it. Nobody taught you to do that. Hey, this is how you steal. You just do it. And your conscience says, oh, you should not have done that. And every man, every woman has a conscience, and that comes into play at the white throne judgment. Now, let me tell you two quick stories, and I'm done. First is about my friend Bud. Bud came to Christ about 1968 or 69, he was my next-door neighbor at the time. And <clears throat> he had really a rough, rough, rough life. But he was brilliant. He, he wasn't educated, but he's brilliant. A real engineer, self-taught. And <clears throat> Bud was working uh, with some ruffians in Arizona, mining camp. And uh, he said they were drinking and carrying on, and he knew there was kind of a rift between the two owners of the business, as I remember the story. And so they, they had been drinking, and so he, with the two owners, were in a, a, a small plane flying from Arizona over into Mexico. And he said they, uh, the, the one, uh, not the pilot, but the other uh, man in the cab of the plane sitting next to the uh, pilot was just uh, passed out drunk. 
And he said, I've been drinking a lot too. But he says, I wasn't quite out and I was just kind of semi-awake. And he said, I, I heard, felt the, the wind come into the cab as the door was opened. And he said, the pilot took his foot and he pushed the drunk man out of the plane. And obviously he fell to his death. And you could, that's kind of shocking to hear him. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, I just, I just act like I was passed out drunk. And he said, when the plane landed, he said, I just stayed asleep in, it, in, in, in the back of the plane. And when the pilot went off to register or whatever he's going to do, he said, I got out, and I have never seen them again. So what should I do, Pastor? That's the question to me. Well, I, I'd never had to answer that one before. <laughs> but I did, could do the math. <laughs> it's been 15 years since that happened. And that body is someplace out in a Mexican desert somewhere. Uh, I imagine the coyotes have gotten there by now. And uh, so uh, who are we going to tell? Uh, well, we're going to go to the judge and say such and such happened. And so we, we got to find the defendant, we, you know, all of that. And I said to Bud, you're new in Christ. Uh, the past is gone. And let me assure you of this. The perpetrator will have to stand before God. His day will come, and he will be held accountable because you can't avoid the criminal court on earth, but you can't avoid God's court. I think of my friend Tom. Tom had been a faithful servant of Christ for 50 years. He was lying on his, dead bed, his deathbed in Kaiser, Fontana. And I went in to visit him, and this was a number of years ago, and his wife called me. She says, Tom needs to talk to you. He just wants to talk to something. And that, we were all aware that he probably would die within hours. And, and Tom says, I've never told anybody this. My wife doesn't know about this. And only the woman that was involved, to my knowledge, know that I was unfaithful to my life in a one-night stand 50 years ago. And I can't go out into eternity without telling somebody. So he told me his story, and I said to him, aren't we glad we have a Savior? Because there was another trial. That trial was about 2,000 years ago. The Lamb of God was judged and found guilty. Erroneously, the greatest injustice of all of history happened at the cross. But he willingly went there for you and for me. And why did he go there? You don't have to stand. We do not have to stand at the great white throne judgment. Jesus is taking God's wrath for us. And because we have faith in him, we have become as right before God as he is. And we become the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. And he's loved us with an everlasting love. And I think that's a pretty good deal, don't you? Pretty good deal. So, I think I'd like to close this way. I'd like to just take an opportunity to have you stand with me. And I'd love to do this and just to placate me. I want to lead our congregation in just a prayer of devotion and commitment. Because giving thought to this sermon... There's something that's been called the Roman road. 
And uh, it's an evangelism tool, a witnessing tool. And you begin with Romans uh, 3.20, where it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Next admission is that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 6.23. And then you go over to the 10th uh, uh, chapter, and it says, uh, in, in verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God is raising him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth uh, we confess unto righteousness, and with the heart we believe unto salvation. That's usually what's in the Roman road. But I want to call it the Roman road plus one. And Pastor brought this to us in one of his latest sermons. He took us to Romans 12.1. And what does it say? I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies living sacrifices unto him, which is your reasonable act of worship. So my prayer with you, and I want you to pray these words after me because we're going to pray a prayer of committal on this Baptism Sunday, and I just think that would be a great way to close out our, 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 our service, and our pastors said we could be loud, so let's be loud, all right? <laughs> So this is what we're going to do. Pray this after me, if you will. Lord Jesus, I come before you. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the resurrection. I thank you that my sins are forgiven. And I'm righteous before you. And out of the love of my heart, I surrender my life to you. I ask for the grace and strength to serve you all the days of my life and to be bold in my witness to the lost folks around me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.